This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Want to know what's going on in your neck of the woods and learn the history and the people behind the events that you love across the state? Get to know the real Mississippi. Check out MPB Think Radio's Next Stop Mississippi podcast on all platforms or on the MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's a show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi, and I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Um, I'm editor-at-large and editorial cartoonist with Mississippi Today. Douglas Blackman is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. He's a journalist, filmmaker, and started his career, get this, age 12. Yeah, an article he wrote was published in his local newspaper, and he has not stopped since. So fast forward to his current project, which is PBS's American Experiences, The Harvest. It's a new documentary that's examining public school integration and the consequences 50 years later. It's going to be premiering coming up on September 12th, and you'll understand why his passion for revealing the truth has yet to cease. He joins us today to discuss his documentary, his career, future projects, and we should why we should not forget our past. Douglas, I got to tell you, it's a huge honor for me to get to talk to you. I've been a fan a long time. I cover. I remember your your work in the Wall Street Journal for many years, and then of course your excellent book, Slavery by Another Name, which came out in two thousand nine. You won a Pulitzer for that. Uh, but the Harvest is coming out, and it's a very deeply personal project to you. And I thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's so funny in a, in a total Mississippi way. You're from Leland. I, you know, I'm sure we know people because it's Leland, but you also know a very good friend of my sister also. So it's the thing about Mississippi. There isn't six degrees of separation. We do it in two here. <laughs> no, that's very true. I was I was pretty amazed by that one connection. And uh, and we keep up with each other. So that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you, by the way. And I really, really look forward to the uh, documentary uh, because, number one, it's just intriguing, um, the fact that you're able to follow the lives of so many people over so many years and see how it turned out. But also, too, just understanding you and your passion and, and why this conversation is so incredibly important to have right now in this moment. We saw, obviously, what the shooting in Jacksonville over the weekend. Um, it seems like in a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing both online and from some of our political leaders, we just are kind of in a point in this country. And, and I don't know if it's because of social media and algorithms or everything else, but we're not talking to each other. We're talking past each other. I'm afraid that's true. And uh, and I agree that the, the story that we tell in The Harvest, and uh, which is it's a story that uh, there have to be hundreds of thousands, maybe millions uh, of Mississippians and, and uh, people who grew up in other southern states who are now in their 50s, uh, who, who experienced some version of the same thing uh, when, the, when the schools all integrated abruptly in 1970. And, uh, and it's very much so the case that there's a, you know, there's, a, there's a line, a very straight line that extends from that moment in time when people were talking past each other a lot of the time and not really listening or choosing not to hear each other or uh, choosing to believe things that they kind of knew were not true sometimes. There, yeah, there's definitely a straight line from all of that to versions of the current world we live in where I think even more people in some respects uh, just want to avoid the truth, want to avoid the complexity of our society. And, uh, and I think that there's a risk of great harm from that. I watched a speech with you. I think it was facing history in ourselves. And, and you said something that was incredibly profound. You said the only way our nation can 
fulfill and realize the principles that we claim to believe in and found it in and to fully fulfill them. We need to stop forgetting so much. And talking about how our persistent past, we have to confront it to face it, not for the purpose of distributing guilt on on descendants and, and who have a mark on them, but we need to understand so we can decide design a better future. And I, I paraphrase that, but um, that's just spot on right there. We just have to have relationships and conversations to make this situation or we're just going to completely fall to pieces. Yeah, I, well, I agree with that. And, I, and, and, the, and also the very important part of that, that about being honest about other things, right. you know, being candid about what happened in the past. And I think that um, there are too many of us, and this is not just a conservative or liberal thing, yeah. but there are too many of us who, uh, who really want to, to just say, well, let's just forget about everything that happened before today. Uh, and, you know, let's just all agree that that we're going to do good and we're going to move forward. Uh, and, you know, well, that's better than doing bad things, but that's not the path to uh, to really building a society that everyone feels like they're genuinely a part of or that they can genuinely be a part of it. Uh, and I also think from, from what you paraphrased, one of the most important parts of that, too, is this idea that it's up to us to design the future. You know, the future doesn't just happen to us. We decide what the future is going to be. We decide what sort of society we want to live in. And, uh, and then we have to work toward it. And it proves almost impossible to achieve that over and over again if we are still misleading ourselves about things that happened in the past and that did some harm. Yeah. And, and you know, I was kind of wondering, the harvest is coming out. It'll be a September 12th. It'll be right here on MPB. And like I said, I really look forward to it because it deals with here. It deals with Mississippi. It deals with Leland. It deals with your experience growing up. And I was watching another speech. I I got a lot of you over the weekend, just to let you know. Um, uh, I'm flattered. No, I feel like I know you so well now. No, it was great because I kind of fell into that YouTube algorithm, you know, uh, hole of listening to your, your talks. And and this was a speech in the Russell Library from 13 years ago, right? So you're talking a little bit about what the harvest is about, and we're going to go into that, obviously, into depth. But it kind of makes me understand a little bit about you as a reporter and how you – what fired you up. Because here you were a kid, literally in seventh grade. And I remember the cartoons I drew in seventh grade generally just got me sent to the principal's office. So, I mean, you were doing much headier stuff in seventh grade than I was doing. Um, but you wrote a, an essay that – Came in second, and it was just such a great story. But you you didn't write it like on what most people would write about in seventh grade. You wrote about the farm labor strike of 1965 that happened in Washington County there, which was an incredible topic, and you went and did your research. So it was kind of predetermined early on that you were going to get into journalism and, and tell stories. I guess that's true. Uh, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have an awareness of that consciously, that, that this was the beginnings of being a journalist. But what I did have a real awareness of, for whatever reason, was that you know, that I, I really wanted to know what really happened, you know, and I, and I wanted to understand not just about that, but about all sorts of things. Yeah. And I just wanted to understand the world around me and not just I had trouble just accepting whatever I was told. And um uh, and so that made me pretty annoying to some adults, as you can imagine. But uh, but but uh, but particularly living in a place like Leland up in the Delta, and with the level of poverty that was still so pervasive in in, in that period of time, in the 1960s, 1970s, and 
the fact that I went to a school that was overwhelmingly majority black. And so I had lots of classmates who I didn't really understand or know a lot about their lives at home. But I did understand that they faced obstacles uh, that I did not. And, and and that confused me. You know, I, I just didn't understand why that was. And so that really did motivate me to try to, you know, dig up answers. And, and, and it, it did lead me down a path. For people who don't know where Leland is, shame on you, number one, because that's obviously Jim Henson's, I mean, that's the claim to fame is the birthplace of Kermit the Frog. But also, too, it's right there on Deer Creek. It's just east of Greenville, and it's near Stoneville, which is the big research station. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, obviously, a big farming community as well. How did your family end up there, and how did you and, – and tell me a little bit about your parents, because that obviously they um, – you had to have grown up into a house where education was valued and so forth. Yeah, both my parents were actually born in Louisiana, and my whole family has lots of North Louisiana connections. And we would go back down there to visit grandparents very, very frequently. But both of them in the, in the little country places where they lived, born in the night, in 1940. Uh, and, and both of them were the, in my mom's case, she and all of her siblings went to college and they were all the first to, in, to, in the family, the extended family to go to college. And then my dad was the first uh, on the, where he lived, 100 miles away. And the, and so they definitely saw education as the way out of the the poverty that they were born into, and um, uh, and then my dad ended up getting a PhD at LSU, and uh, and after that, uh, or, or, or before the PhD came, he for a short time he had a job, a research job at a at a laboratory of some sort in Stuttgart, Arkansas. And so the family lived there for a very short period of time, and that's where I was born. And so that's in the Arkansas end of the Delta, just the very edge of it over in Arkansas. And then and then we moved back to Baton Rouge. He finished his Ph.D., and he got a job at Stoneville, as you were describing, as a research scientist. And so that's what brought us back to Leland. Uh, and Leland is a place that's very affected by, and certainly in the past, was very affected by the presence of Stoneville. And in those days... The, the people who worked there were, you know, huge numbers of, uh, of scientist types. It was often said that Leland had the highest per capita of PhDs of, you know, any small town in America or something like that. Nobody really knew. But, uh, but that did have an effect on the town, uh, that uh, the Stoneville was a place where, even though most of the folks working there were still Southerners and you know, had grown up in a very racist world and carried a lot of those attitudes around, but they also were people who generally had had gone somewhere else at some point, you know, and had, had pursued education and, and had been had um, had had some sort of awakening. And, the, and in the film, my mother describes in great vivid detail the, the awakening that she had that was a part of that experience and that changed her life and changed all of our lives. You know, um, you know, you think about dates and times that change things a little bit. And of course, you know, a lot of people think, always talk about the landmark ruling Brown versus Board of Education from 1954. And that obviously was not a seismic shift in Mississippi because a lot of people ignored it. But October 29th, 1969, um, that's when the high court ordered so, so many Mississippi counties. And I'm surprised it wasn't more than it was. 
to desegregate immediately, and one of them was your school. So that's kind of where this whole adventure – I mean, you talk a little bit about, obviously, the background and, and so forth, but that's kind of – that was the seismic moment to kind of set this in play, wasn't it? That's exactly right. And uh, and it was that ruling by the Supreme Court, uh, uh, the home decision that South's referred to, but that ruling was – excuse me <clears> – <throat> that ruling was specifically applicable – to 30 districts, roughly 30 districts, in Mississippi, where the Supreme Court had combined into one case all of these lawsuits that had been filed uh, against different school districts across the state. But the, but the ruling, uh, even though it was specifically about those 30 districts, uh, it was very clear that it applied to every school district in the South, every district in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, South Carolina, Georgia, you know, every every place that still had separate schools for black and white, uh, that ruling meant that's over, and you have to immediately dismantle the separate schools. And so that's what happened in thousands and thousands of towns. And I encounter people all the time in Mississippi and other places in the South uh, who were a little older than me, and so they they remember being in the eighth grade or maybe in high school and those events occurring where in the middle of the school year around christmas of 1969 or, or the the winter break in february of 1970 uh but people remember that that's when the school suddenly had to be totally rearranged uh and and combined and uh, interestingly enough most people who were old enough to have those kinds of memories at the time in my experience they tend to have assumed that that only happened in their town. It's a very strange thing. Oh, wow. they, yeah, yeah. Over and over again, I, I hear that story of, well, you won't believe what happened in my town. You know, for some reason, they decided to do X, Y, and Z right in the middle of the school year. It was crazy. And what people have forgotten, or maybe they never knew at the time, is that, in fact, that was happening in thousands of places and affecting millions of children all over the South at almost exactly the same time. Yeah, so it's because I'm I'm th- like three years behind you. So I started in '73, and I remember. So I like I said, I never didn't have that shift either. I mean, it was literally I started from the get go. But we were totally different than Leland because you were 25 percent white, 75 percent African American. We were 90 percent white, 10 percent African American. So it wasn't a huge shift necessarily for us. But I do remember that, and I remember in DeKalb County in Georgia, they had a big busing fight and so forth. So I mean, I even have memories of it as kids. Um, but for me, it was like, oh, I just always went to school with my friends. I never really thought anything about that a little bit. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, and I'm with the Harvest's uh, filmmaker and creator. We got Douglas Blackman on, who is a, from Leland. That's where you grew up, and uh, you're going to be coming back, too. I, that's fantastic. And couldn't have you in the studio today, but definitely hope I get a chance to meet you and, and shake your hand. Well, I hope so, too, and I, and I appreciate the uh, the promo that I just heard. Uh, but, but yeah, they're, I do want to encourage people to come out to the world premiere of the film uh, at Stoneville uh, on Wednesday night, the 29th, uh, if I've got that right. And uh, But a lot of people who were in the film and interviewed for the film will be there. I think it's going to be a really, really interesting session. And then we'll come to Jackson the next night um, to the, the two museums and, uh, and, and show the film again there and have another discussion uh, again with some uh, I'll have with me the superintendent of schools uh, from Leland, who's also a member of my class that graduated in 1982, uh, and some other interesting folks. And I, I hear there are already a lot of people coming, and but there there are seats 
available at both places. There, at one time, uh, I think the word went around that, it, that they sold out. But, but in fact, they have not, just FYI. Oh, that's great. Once again, you can go to mpbonline.org to sign up for that as well. And, you know, like I said, uh, it, I saw this interview, and you were literally talking about this topic. And when you were discussing your your last book, and so this is something that's been on your mind for a long time. When did you sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to pull the trigger and I'm going to actually do this documentary? Well, we decided to, to pursue a film um, right at a little more than 10 years ago. Uh, and now I had been, as you say, I had written a number of other things that, that touched on uh, parts of this story, including an essay in Harper's Magazine in 1992, um, and then I had tried um, back then, uh, I tried to write a book and, and did, in fact, write a pretty big manuscript, but I could never quite close that project down. You know, I could never quite get it done. And at some point, I realized that that, uh, that I just wasn't old enough yet. I, I didn't, um, I, I wasn't mature enough as a writer in some respect or as a thinker. And I just couldn't quite make it work. Uh, and so I put that aside. And uh, then got eventually the stories that led to the book Slavery by Another Name and the film by the same name, uh, and that that took up about 15 years of my life. Uh, and uh, and it, finally, I decided, um, well, you know, I'm going to go back to that that story of Leland. And so I went to the, uh, I decided to go to the high school graduation in Leland in 2012. And that was the 30th anniversary of my class's graduation, and. Um, and that was the day that I, while I was there, I pulled a tiny little camera uh, out of my pocket and shot some video of the of the graduation. And then uh, the next day, I called up my creative partner Sam Pollard, who who co-produced the film with me, and who also uh, we worked together on the Slavery by Another Name film. And I called Sam up, who's a legendary American filmmaker, uh, and um, and said, "Let's make a movie." And uh, he agreed to do it. And we never imagined it would be 11 years before we were done, but uh, but that's what happened. You set it up perfectly. I mean, you talk a little bit about the setup, okay, about what, you know, Mississippi's brutal history of racial intolerance and segregation. You talk a little bit about how, the you know, the, the black schools are terribly underfunded. I mean, you really do set the stage on that. But then you get into the people, and you, you've touched on that a little bit about your classmates. And to, that's what I'm really looking forward to is just seeing how, you know, here you were, you were at a school where you were with your classmates, and, and the success rate of the people that are in this film are incredible. This, some of the things, you went on, obviously, to have a very successful career as a writer and in journalism, uh, but, I mean, a lot of your classmates are now leaders in the community and other communities as well. It's it's just an incredible class. Um, and the th- other thing, I guess, this is going to be a very long question, sorry. The other thing, too, is just that, you know, of most of the towns, you know, the, the, the academy popped up. All the white children went to the academy. It instantly was 100 percent, 100 percent on either side. But y'all were a little different. You, you had 20. You know, there were a lot of white kids that went to the new school. And, and it just was a totally different scenario, wasn't it? It was unusual for Mississippi at that time. It wasn't the only place that had some version of that, particularly in the early years, uh, in the, the, the in the 1970s. But uh, but that was a, a you know distinctive thing, and that was one reason why, uh, as a kid, even not fully understanding everything that had happened, because uh, I think in all of the interviews we did with my classmates, uh, all of them said that 
when they were starting the first grade, and many of them said even until the day that I called them up and said, you know, would you participate in this project, that all of them uh, had no awareness that we were the first class to really? go all 12 grades together. Um, and, the, and I didn't know that until I was in college, and, and I ran across a reference to the class of 1982 in, a, in the book The Courting of Marcus Dupree by, by Willie Morris, the great Mississippi writer. Uh, and he wrote about that class in Philadelphia um, that graduated in 1982. And that's when I first realized, wait a minute, was it the same in Leland? And I called my mother up, and she said yes. And and I said, you might have told me that, Mom. I'm kind of, <laughs> you know, I'm interested in this topic. But, um, but no, it was a special thing that uh, both the relationships that we had, white and black, and I think the film uh, does capture those dynamics in, in, a, in a way that people find uh, a little moving at times and, and unusually revelatory. Uh, and, uh, but what makes it, uh, I think what makes it so compelling is that it's not just nostalgia. You know, it's not just everyone uh, doing the reunion uh, storytelling about how great things were. Uh, there's a lot of honesty about the things that didn't work very well, and the conflicts that did come up. But through all of that, it's also very evident to me that, you know, that this is a group of, of people who, who really loved each other, whether they knew that or not. Um, and, uh, and that came through. And, uh, and you're right that a lot of those folks have, uh, have done really deep things as adults, and, 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 uh, but, but on a wide range of, occupations and levels of, uh, you know, uh, of income and all that. Uh, it, but the, in many respects, the, you know, the most endearing stories are the kids who, who stayed in Leland, which almost very few white kids did, you know, and, and almost everybody who could go to college or had that capacity did and didn't come back. And, uh, but those, but those folks who, who stayed, or came back after they went to college, almost all African-American. And then uh, as we were making the film, those folks started popping up uh, now in middle age and doing the things that you do in your 50s, you know, running for the school board or, or uh, uh, becoming the police chief. And, you know, so, so it was remarkable that so many people from our class precisely ended up in those sorts of roles. And then finally, while we we're making the film, they, they hired another classmate as a school superintendent. All of that would be sort of mathematically improbable uh, if you walk, if it was a fictional story, but um, but yeah, it is a remarkable group, and uh, and they, uh, you know, they're human beings and are imperfect, but they deeply care about their town uh, and the children who are in those schools. And then, and I would imagine too that caring probably is extended to seeing that. Some of the gains that were made, obviously, by your class and by the friendships and so forth, is to see it backslide, to see some of the, the, the good things that happened start to go backwards. That had to be – I'm sure that came up a few times. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and, and that definitely comes through in the film that you – know, that, uh, I mean, some people have a greater sense of this than others, but, uh, but the idea that, that so much was done – to try to make things work, uh, and we as kids you know, lived out this kind of guinea pig experience without entirely understanding what was going on or why, uh, and 
it is a shame to uh, to see that come undone, uh, and particularly because by the late 1970s, the around the time of the bicentennial celebration in 1976, uh, we found footage that's in the film of those celebrations uh, at that time, and it's really remarkable the portrait of the town that you could see at that point uh, that has gone from uh, images that we found of like a homecoming parade in 1964 where it's all white people up and down the street and in the in the parade and there's just a tiny group of black people way in the distance on the other side of the railroad tracks so this this world of of arch segregation apartheid really is the correct term and that from 1964 to the middle of the 1970s just a blink of an eye uh, we see this footage where, you know, there's so many black and white people together and in the parades, and there's black Cub Scouts with the white Cub Scouts, something I have no memory of and that I, I, I would have never really believed could have happened. Uh, but but the things really did advance towards something, and it is tragic that that, that largely fell apart over the next 10 years. You know, it's just looking at, your career and the things that you've covered. I mean, you covered post-apartheid South Africa, war crimes in Yugoslavia, uh, the natural disaster, obviously, at what happened to Katrina. So many different things you've talked. I mean, you, the things that you've covered in your in your journalistic experience, it's like the things that you learned growing up and you've seen in Mississippi were like, obviously, I mean, this is issues that are going on all around the world. I just thought that was interesting. How would you view how... South Africa came back together post-apartheid, and you think about the, the successes we've had in Mississippi versus the failures in a little bit. How do you compare the things that you've seen around the world to what you've seen in Mississippi? Well, there are there are a lot of similarities, uh, and uh, and it is true that uh, we kind of obsess, and to some degree, the whole world obsesses on the racial divide that exists in America and the difficulties that we have had advancing beyond where things were in the 1960s. And, and so, but also because we're Americans, we obsess on ourselves even more. And we sometimes, that, that, that leads us not to realize that in many respects, uh, we have made so much more progress in America than any other multiracial society in the world. I mean, we really have created the most racially egalitarian society uh, that, that, that is a society of multiple races. Uh, but ours is the most egalitarian one that's ever existed in human history, really. Uh, now, that's a great thing, but we also have to recognize that, but it's still a very flawed one in which we all know that, you know, anything can happen at any time. Uh, and uh, you know, there are huge fissures that still exist. And they're even more mysterious today than they were 50 years ago because we've done so many of the things that 50 years ago people thought were the answer. Uh, but it turns out it's not enough. You know, we, we've underestimated the issues. And so those things apply all around the world, too. And you know, there are people uh, living out their version of the racism and, uh, and cynicism that was so prevalent in Mississippi in the 1960s and 50s and 40s. I mean, there are places all around the world where versions of that continue today. And and sadly, uh, some of those places I've been to were ones where those people, you know, were 
set out to kill each other uh, because of those divisions. And thankfully, uh, Mississippi never got to that place. Uh, but I will say that having observed those sorts of things all, uh, in so many places, that I think Mississippi has actually made kind of extraordinary progress, particularly when you look at just what a iron, rigid, racist, white supremacist structure controlled Mississippi at the time that I was born and when you were born. If you're honest about how bad that was, and then you look at how much things have progressed, it's quite extraordinary. But but it is still, Mississippi is it's kind of trapped. In a in a structure that you know was was the design of a racist world, uh, and that racism has gone away in to, to such a degree, you know, to, to not not entirely, but to a very large degree. But people still can't figure out how to break out of the structure that divides everyone uh, and become a you know. A genuinely unified society, and and that's that's the mystery and the, the paradox. You obviously the relationships were a big key of you and your friendships of of the people that you went to school with. And I, like I said, I saw you in that speech. You were talking about how you know you would have things that you did together in school, and then you would leave school. And like you said, the Boy Scouts were segregated and so forth. The the T ball or the baseball team was segregated and so forth. Outside of that. I talked with a friend of mine who's from Philadelphia, Mississippi, and he said that the thing, and and you speak of Willie's excellent book on that, and I think he was mentioned a few times in the book too, but he said that the the thing that saved them that really helped, you know, build friendships and so forth was sports. was literally, yeah, yeah, it was a big thing. And I mean, you look back in Mississippi history, I mean, football has played a huge part. And because, you know, when you're sitting there bleeding and sweating next to somebody, you don't really care what color they are. You just want them to make sure they make their block and you don't get killed. You know. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And uh, uh, and and it, and I, even though I was an athlete, never a particularly great one, but uh, basketball was my game. And in the ninth grade, I was for most of the season the the only white kid on the on the team on the high school team. And uh, and of course, we played in a league. Uh, mostly in the Delta, North Mississippi, that you know most of the schools we played were overwhelmingly African American, and so there were many, many nights uh, that we would end up at an away game somewhere uh, where I felt like I and the coach were you know probably the only white people for miles around. I don't think that was entirely true, but that was the way it felt. But that was a but that was a singular experience in my life. Uh, the, the interactions that I had with those other players and. Uh, figuring out how to make that work, uh, and to and to just to just interact as a as a human being with everyone else that that was a profound thing. And athletics is a way that uh, and band is another one. You know where where people really do develop these relationships, and that's where I think uh, the the deepest connections are often made. Uh, and that's another irony of all this is that we know that, and we know that. There are ways that people end up with a sense of camaraderie and and and, uh, uh, and a sense of being on a team together with people who are not entirely like them. Uh, you know, we know the effect of that, and uh, and yet we still um, we still resist that. You know, and uh, and the the way we have ended up with in Mississippi and many other states, with Mississippi is the most prominent, I think. 
of the the separate private schools that were, no matter what anybody says, were originally set up explicitly to preserve segregation and and exclude black kids. And uh, even though most of them now have had a black kid or an Indian kid uh, uh, attend, or maybe a good many uh, over the years, but it's still the case that every little town uh, having a, a virtually all-white private school uh, that's heavily subsidizing all the white kids and a uh, and a black and all, nearly all black public school uh, that becomes a system that just nobody knows how to break out of and that holds back communities that that, that bleeds communities and injures the students who live there. I was about to say, I was thinking about your experience and how, you know, when you arrive working for the Wall Street Journal and you're in the middle of New York City, you know how to get along with everybody because you've done that already, right? So, uh, and I'm just using that one example because I just think about New York being how incredibly diverse it is. But that, like I said, that probably helped you along the way in your career is the fact that you know how to deal with people that maybe aren't exactly like you. Absolutely. And uh, and in fact, when I first arrived at the Wall Street Journal, what I really discovered was uh, a place that was full of mostly white Ivy League uh, graduates who, for the most part, had had very little interaction with people who weren't just like them. Uh, and so and it was absolutely an advantage to me uh, that I was unafraid of, uh, of differences uh, and that uh, and that's not to say that I'm perfect or uh, that uh, that I didn't have a you know we all we all are infected uh, with the idea of in our society that white people have some sort of innate advantages over other people that's such a fundamental concept to American society that it's just unavoidable that that we all pick up some piece of that no matter what race we are even I would say uh, and the, but but it's through engaging with other people uh, that you realize the the ridiculousness of those kinds of ideas, and you stop having those expectations or those invisible thoughts about about other people. And and for sure, the experience that I had in a in a very diverse public school in Lula, Mississippi, and that so many and so many of my classmates say the same thing that that was the real world, and that's the real world that exists in America today, and that's the real world that's going to exist in the future, uh, and and so maintaining a, uh, a system that doesn't allow children to experience that real world, some children, uh, it's really a dangerous thing. It definitely doesn't help. Uh, we're talking with Douglas Blackman. The new documentary is coming out. It's called Harvest. Uh, it's going to be premiering on MPB. It's American Experience. It's going to be on Tuesday, September 12th from 9 until 11. Looking forward to it. It was great. And you can sign up to attend one of the two screenings of Harvest at mpbonline.org, and the details will be there as well. This is now you're talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, and I'm with, once again with the Harvest filmmaker, Douglas Blackman, who's from Leland, Mississippi. Uh, now, I, what, you're, in, you're in Atlanta now, correct? That's right. Yeah, very good. Downtown Atlanta. Yeah, what, what, uh, what are you doing these days? Well, I teach at Georgia State University, which is a massive 55,000-student urban university in downtown Atlanta, uh, one of the most diverse schools in America. Graduates more African-American males than any other institution in the country, but, but a very, very diverse, fascinating uh, university. And so I teach there. Um, 
some classes that relate to storytelling and, and narrative, uh, and uh, and I do that, and I pursue other projects like The Harvest and, a, and, a, and a, an unrelated book that will be coming out next year as well. Um, and so that's my uh, that's been my agenda for quite a few years now. Oh, that's awesome. Because that, I know you were up in Virginia for a while, too. And uh, you've had an incredible career. And like I said, this, The Harvest is coming out. What are some of the have, – have you had any screen – this is the first screening is going to be here, or is, has anybody seen it yet? I didn't know what kind no, of feedback you're – go ahead. Screening in, in, the screening in Stoneville this week uh, yeah. will be the, the very first time that uh, it's seen by a, by a public audience. Nice. We, you know, I've shared – Shared parts of it at times with with folks to get some feedback and and uh, I did let my mother see the whole thing since okay. she's kind of the, she's one of the stars uh, as it turns out and uh, but but yeah this will be the first time that an audience has seen it and it will be an interesting experience to be sitting there with so many of the people in the film and others from the town uh, and to be watching it for the first time and seeing how they react to it uh, and I'm, I'm really curious. Uh, what I will learn that night. Yeah, well, I mean, what was it like reconnecting with your old friends and then asking them, hey, would you do this? What kind of reaction did you get from them? Uh, the, the members of my class were overwhelmingly receptive and, uh, and open to it, and, uh, and I felt a real reconnection to them, a very deep one, because it had been quite a few years since I had had any direct uh, connection to Leland, and so... Uh, finding those people and learning more about the lives that they had led over the last 30 years and, uh, and, you know, and reconnecting in a really personal way was, was actually a wonderful thing. Uh, not something I exactly expected. The, and, and for the most part, I think that Leland, uh, has been, has been interested in that this project was, was going on for these last several years and they, Got it. Folks got accustomed to me showing up abruptly with a, a crew and shooting things around town and taking over buildings for various interviews that we did. And so, uh, but there also, I think, is some nervousness, uh, and sure. understandably, because uh, you can't tell this story about any place in Mississippi or just about anywhere in the South without telling the the story of some of the things that happened in the 1960s. That when we look back. It's really difficult not to see them as terrible mistakes, uh, and and uh, and also one of the things that we briefly mentioned in the film uh, that I think to be is quite interesting for particularly for Mississippi audiences is that we talk a little bit uh, about the private school movement uh, that in this first grew out of the citizens councils and then exploded in 1969 and 1970. And many, many people who were involved in starting those schools, including some who were very dear to me and, and people I deeply loved as a child and still have great affection for, uh, but there were many people involved in starting those schools who were unaware uh, that they were part of a conspiracy, really. And I don't use that word lightly. Uh, and But there's actually some, you know, some documentation that... Uh, a scholar over at Ole Miss uh, fell into his hands a few years ago for a dissertation that he wrote. Um, I think he's going to be at the Jackson event. Uh, but the, but some documents from the from the founding of the of the private school association in Mississippi that make it really clear 
that uh, in the beginning, uh, those schools were being instructed to tell the world and to tell the IRS that they did not uh, discriminate or exclude black students, but in fact, uh, they did. And it was a requirement to be a part of that association or they'd be thrown out. Uh, and, and those documents also revealed that, you know, the folks behind, there were a group of people uh, who were pushing uh, for very explicit white supremacist reasons to try to, to get schools underway everywhere they could in Mississippi and Louisiana uh, in a very direct effort to wreck public schools and preserve segregation. That's what it was all about. Lots of people didn't realize that's what they were a part of, but that is what was going on in the background. You know, you you talk a little bit about the talking about uncomfortable things. I, I know everybody does it. I mean, I, I do it with my own family sometimes. There's just some things you want to whitewash and you don't want to tell people about, oh, this is bad or or whatever. And obviously maybe something grandpa did was 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 despicable and everything else. You don't want to mention it. But I've noticed now and, and I heard today on the radio as I was driving in, um, there was a politician. I don't even know what party it was, but it, but but I suspect I know who it was. But the point, her, her point was she just didn't think we needed to talk about uncomfortable things. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I kind of just seeing the back and forth I see on my social media now, and I, I kind of feel like that maybe now is the time that we need to start talking about some uncomfortable things for all the reasons that you've mentioned in the past hour is the fact that we've got to plan a better future, right? Or there's some things that you suggest in the documentary that, you know, can give us some hope or some things that we need to work toward. Well, the, 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 the documentary in many respects uh, ends on a very hopeful note uh, that, and interestingly enough, uh, it will air on PBS on September 12th, but the previous night on September 11th, uh, there'll be another film on PBS uh, that is about the, the busting crisis in Boston in, that was happening at the same time that we were you know, going through the early years of integration in Mississippi. And that film is deeply depressing. You know, the, and and the, the two films are paired uh, as stories of you know, what was happening with schools and integration, one story in the north, one story in the south. And that's a good way to look at it and to see that the problems that were being wrestled with were not unique to the South. Uh, they, they were more pervasive in some respects, but they were not unique. But the but what the film, what our film arrives at, is really asking the question of was everything that happened, all the things we went through, and a lot of it was was, was genuinely difficult. But was it worth it? That's re- that's really the question that the film asks. Was it worth it? have gone through all that, particularly given that the way things have ended up, that it's essentially an all-black public school system and a a most basically all-white private school system. Given that outcome, was it worth it to do all that was necessary back in not just 1970, but for the decade after that? And the answer to that is yes, it was worth it, even though it didn't turn out the way that my parents were hoping and that other people were hoping back in 1969. It was still worth it. It still opened doors for a, a huge number of people uh, and helped people see the world in a very different way, including Jesse King, who's now the superintendent of schools in Leland. Uh, he was someone who grew up in a, on a tenant house out on a farm that you know the wind blew through the boards in the winter and 
I mean, his descriptions of, of, of his childhood and poverty are, are harrowing in many respects. His father being physically abused by one of the, the overseers on the farm. I mean, just, just a terrible, terrible story that sounds like something from the 1850s, not the, not the 1970s. And the, but, but what happened in Leland, the, the, the push that came about between people who were trying to make things work radically changed his life. And as it did many other people, and it radically changed my life. I was coming from a middle-class family, and things were going to work out pretty good for me, no matter what, I'm sure. But I came out of that experience as a, as a profoundly more wise human being, wise and empathetic uh, and, you know, and able to operate in the world in the way that it really exists today. And I bump into a fair number of folks who have not made that transition and who are still trapped in that world born of the almost compulsive need for separation. Uh, and, and I encounter young people who have come up through that world sometimes uh, who don't understand themselves. You know, they're not crazy racists as far as I can tell. And in many cases, they're wonderful people in many respects, but they have a view of the world that, it's not the one that will serve them best, and it's certainly not the one that will serve their children best. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, I think, and too, and I think we're, we backslide a little bit just because of social media and because of the algorithms. It's almost like it, it spoon-feeds us exactly what we want to hear. So in a way, that helps discourage conversations as much as it does just yelling past each other. Yeah, that, that's totally right. And, uh, and I also, you know, some of the things I say may sound harsh to, to uh, to some people who hear them, uh, and I don't really mean them quite that way. I, I mean, I there I feel harshness about certain things, uh, but but I don't I don't feel that way about people who made a decision genuinely motivated by the their sense of the importance of taking care of the children or, or right. you know where to have the children go to school. I, I understand that. I understand confusion and anxiety around those things. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm empathetic in a lot of directions, but I am less empathetic uh, when it comes to folks who, you know, who can't talk and are, or who want to say, let's not talk about uncomfortable things. The only way to make uncomfortable things not so uncomfortable is to talk about them. And I'll talk about them for sure. I mean, I'll tell you right now, one of my grandfather's participated in a mob attack on a black man when he was when my grandfather was in high school in, the, in a little country place in Louisiana and he confessed that to me uh, close to the end of his life in, in one of the most dramatic uh, heart-wrenching episodes of my life uh, and this man who I had built so much of my persona around uh, in my, my sense of virtue and morality and, and and what it was to be a man. And to learn that, you know, that he had been a part of something like that, that you know, decades, decades before, it didn't change the way that my devotion to him, but it, it made me realize that, you know, that there are these, these deep, painful things uh, that we carry around, and that he needed to get out. Douglas, we're, we're out of time. Gosh, what a great way to end it. And thank you so much. And like I said, thank you for being on with us today. I really appreciate it. 
Well, thank you for having me. And I hope I see you uh, in Jackson very soon. That'll be great. Hey, thanks for listening today. And special thanks to our guest, Douglas Blackman, for joining me. And if you'd like to hear this or any past episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast of your favorite podcast app or on our MPB public media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio with episode and podcast produced by Jermaine Flood. And join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. I'm Marshall Ramsey. Uh, About to say, uh, this has been a great show today, and thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.